everyone, and welcome to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with a rotating cast of co-hosts. My name is Steve Gunley, and I am a naked woman made out of beans. <laughs> My guest today was only allowed on if he uh, buried his first toy in a picture of his mother in my backyard. Sure. Uh, the dogs are getting at it right now. Uh, from the Ultra 64 podcast, what? It's Woody Siskowski. Hi. Yes. Hello, Steve. Welcome uh, thank to the you. place you're frequently at. Yes, it's, it's nice <laughs> to be back after a whopping two days away. It's been a while. It's, <laughs> it's been, been a, while. a while. I hope you've traveled. Yeah, my home away from home here in your little <laughs> office. Um, no, it's 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 good to be here and talk about something different. My brain has to adjust in a weird way from being in here. I'm like, what video game did we play? Yeah. Where do I rank it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I couldn't figure out the controls on this one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, it just seemed to kind of do its own thing the entire time. Though I will say real quick, uh, this ge- this this I almost said this game. Mm. This movie, definite Metal Gear Solid vibes. Oh, like, yeah, 100%. 100%, 100% like, the first yeah. half of this movie is a series of weird boss fights. Or it's like, like the weirdest Red Dead Redemption DLC that they sure. never released. Like Red Dead Redemption El Topo. I would play that, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I think that'd Dig be out the handicapped people from the cave. Oh, God. Like, yeah, basically. Uh, so this is a hard pivot from our conversation last week when we were talking about Mel Brooks to the producers. <laughs> This week we are talking about El Topo. This the movie was released. Topo. Called that because this movie is the tops. It's the tops, baby. Yeah. It's the topographical maps. This was released December 18th, 1970, directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, and it stars Alejandro Jodorowsky and Brontus Jodorowsky, as well as Mara Lorenzo, David Silva, Paula Roma, and Jacqueline Luis. So... Uh, we're dipping back into surrealism for the first time since our first episode when Ooh. we talked about Unchien Andalou. The eyeball-cutting movie? The eyeball-cutting movie, okay. as it is frequently known. And this is also, very weirdly, I think our first foray into westerns of any kind. Oh, man. Which is just it's kind to- of This is unu- totally representative this, of the genre. This is pretty All much westerns straight like down the that. line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty normal. John Wayne basically just copied this. Yeah, yeah, pretty somehow, much. From, from before, somehow? I don't know. Yeah, somehow, he went yeah. forward in time, saw this, and then went back. It's like, well, I reckon this movie is right up my alley. Yeah. Well, I reckon cigarettes. that I am the new face of God. <laughs> I want to see this movie now. I'm going to make out with this midget woman. <laughs> I'm going to abandon my son, my naked child that rides on my back. I've abandoned my naked child. I've abandoned my naked child. <laughs> so uh, we've had a few drinks to, to talk about sure. this movie. I think uh, we didn't we didn't take enough LSD. We I didn't think take that enough was our LSD. Main oversight. But I felt like we had to be at least a little bit altered to mm-hmm. watch this movie just because I think that is the uh, the point. Sure. I think that's the the vibe that's going for, and that's kind of the thing that made this movie the household name that it is today. The beloved yeah, family This is what we, we talk about in my household all the time. Oh, everyone Every gets together on El Topo's Eve. Yeah, exactly. They watch this movie. Um, uh, you know, and th- this movie is kind of like... I'm going to say right off the bat, I don't think I like this movie very much. Sure. But I do like that it's on this list. I think Roger Ebert's list is full of like great American classics and and the the, the masterpieces of world cinema and lots of things that you would expect. But every once in a while, he zags and he puts two Jodorowsky movies on this list. Like that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty bold statement for what is undeniably an underground filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, kind of the definition, you know, he he's is, in fact, the topo, if you will, sure. the hole. Uh, he's so <laughs> underground. Um, so you you were very interested in talking about these Jodorowsky yeah. movies in particular. Yeah. So what's your kind of relationship with this filmmaker and his works? Sure. Well, I am just a generally big fan of Jodorowsky. There's occasionally I'll just kind of get sort of obsessed with a creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and embarrassingly, it was sort of him and Morrissey for a while. Okay, um, which is right. not a great, uh, not a great batting average in terms of at least characters. But there, I really appreciate people who seem to have a very specific worldview mm-hmm. and sort of just fault like Jodorowsky. I think at this point is like ninety two years old. He's mm-hmm. still alive, but he's he's still like a prodigious creator of all kinds of content. And yeah. he's, you know, he's made a decent amount of movies, certainly not a ton in having a 70-year movie or a 50-year movie-making career, but he's also very influential in the in comics. Yeah. Um, the Incall, which he wrote and uh, Mo- Mobius or Moebius mm-hmm. uh, did the illustration, is essentially the blueprint for what I think of as, like, European sci-fi. 
of like heavy metal or uh Valerian or basically all those Luc Besson movies that uh, people kind of like. Yeah, yeah. Um, kinda, yeah, we kind of I mean, like them. Fifth Element, I genuinely like. Yeah, love. sure. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, Fifth Element, like, Jodorowsky, like, almost sued the Fifth Element because it basically stole so much of the design from the Incal. Oh, wow. Um, I did not know just that. Just in terms of the way it looks. And he's just, he's an amazing figure in terms of, like, this person just seems to have an imagine a font of imagination. Like, this movie basically cranks out imaginative images and ideas for the entire two-hour running time. Yeah. And the fact that he's made, I don't know, like eight movies that all basically do that. Yeah. And he's written all these crazy comic books and all these... um, He's written novels about, like, sort of his long family history, and they're all involved in these same sort of weird... Hundreds of plays and, like... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's, like... He's just a super fascinating guy that just, like is totally, totally idiosyncratic and unique. And I just, like, I so dis, sort of have disinterest in his actual philosophies because they're yeah. so far away from what I believe about things. But I do feel like he does a pretty decent job of surrounding them in such a way to make them interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's this was definitely... Uh, an interesting watch. I've seen this movie once before, mm-hmm. uh, about about a decade ago or so, when yep. I was kind of first exploring some more experimental works, and uh, th- this one didn't leave that huge of an impression on me. I sure. think I, I think I remembered more about Santa Sangre, the other movie that's on this list, right. uh, than than uh, El Topo. Uh, it's definitely it's just kind of an interesting confluence of images. It's really a dreamlike sort of movie, and that it flows from just like bizarre scene to bizarre scene. Without necessarily much of a consistent sure. through line, there's a plot. You could say there's a plot. I mean, I really, would say like, like one of the reasons I th- I think I got into Jodorowsky because I have a real interest in finding just like the weirdest movies that I can find, and sometimes that that is often a fool's errand because you'll end up with these sort of just super strange sort of experimental movies that have no connection to anything and yeah. are very much just a series of images. And I think Jodorowsky's films really have stuck with me aside. The Holy Mountain, one of his later movies, or I mean, not that much later, but yeah, really that was does follow up to this. Yeah, yeah, really does have that problem of it is just this totally surreal connection of images, and there's no feeling of narrative. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like the reason I like his movies is because they are as crazy as any movies that exist anywhere by yeah. anyone. But he does make some effort to be like, we're gonna have a through line here, and we're gonna have characters, and because it just. You can create all the crazy symbols you want, but if they don't sort of have any connection to characters or plot, you just sort of glaze over. And that's what happens in this movie eventually. Yeah. But I do feel like there is enough here to give me something to latch onto, aside from just being like, look at this weird shit going down. I mean, I think you put it well when we were watching. Like, we're doing this a little weirdly, too, because normally I'll watch the movie like two or three days before I record, so I have time to marinate on it. Sure. This time we just wrapped, we just rolled credits, and now we're like straight in here recording. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of a different structure, but, uh, my, I don't know. My impression is just that like, there's no real intent on control. There's no real intent on, uh, a finding like some kind of greater meaning. We were talking about if this movie like means anything or if it's just kind of a series of random images that you brought up that like, this means something to him. Like, I I don't think he's making any kind of big sociopolitical, even though there's a lot of like religious imagery and a lot of like violent imagery and things like that. But I don't think he's making any kind of overarching statement so much as he's making a personal kind of glimpse into his mind. Yeah. I think that's a fine way. I don't think that the, I think that the images and weird stuff he puts in this movie are a very conscious choice where he says, okay, this image means this to me and it's this connection to a subconscious. I think his general theme with movies um, just kind of ties into like this sort of human spiritual nature and sort of their connection to uh, more sort of sexual desires, religious desires, and not so much the more practical or materialistic things. Yeah. Um, and I this just seems like a very sort of basic hero's journey here, filtered through his weird lens. Yeah. He's just kind of like this is this is sort of the human life put forth, but I don't think he's necessarily saying something about it so much as just trying to find um, weird images that resonate with his view of the human life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit about the backstory of the, the history of Alejandro Jodorowsky, because I think it's all kind of tied together into making this fascinating man. I mean, yeah. like we said, 91 years old, still with us today. I feel like he's kind of made it his life's mission to just make the world a little stranger. Yes. Like that's been kind of his goal is just to make things, uh, just to push things and get as weird as you can with it. Appreciate that. I, I think that is a it. very honorable goal, and he's probably done more for that than almost anyone. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, so he has a kind of a complicated background. Uh, his parents were Ukrainian Jews who fled uh, their home country. He was born in Bolivia, hmm. but he was raised in Chile. Uh, and his parents were pretty horribly abusive to him from day one. Sure. He was. That's another recurring theme. You'll see that in uh, Santa Sangre, mm-hmm. where I think he makes his son get a tattoo with no painkillers or yeah. maybe dental appointments. That's a recurring theme in a bunch of his movies. It, his it keeps dad coming is a up. huge asshole. Yeah, he. I mean, Jodorowsky was the product of rape, and and oh, okay. his dad was like continually abusive to him and his mother, and his sure. mother resented him for that. And then he was picked on by the kids in Chile because uh, because of he was Jewish, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So he never really found a place to be comfortable. Uh, so he kind of disappeared into the arts, and he especially loved like the performing arts, like theater and mime. Right. And when he was twenty years old, he moved to Paris to learn how to become a mime, and he learned from none other than Marcel Marceau, king of arguably the mimes. Ar- king of the mimes. He presides over his mime when kingdom he ha- with when a he baguette. hands you this invisible business card. That's the <laughs> invisible text on it. Is king of the mimes. You're only able to see it if you're chosen. Yeah, if you are also a mime. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, he worked with Marcel Marceau. What if, okay, wait. Here's my pitch. Yeah. What if the what if mimes are secretly taking over the world and only their they can only understand their signals if they themselves are mimes. <laughs> okay. So whenever you see a mime on the street uh, doing their act, they're actually like signaling all the other mimes that this place is ripe for takeover. Okay, so like we we're seeing just an invisible like glass window or something. Yeah. They're seeing like a whiteboard with a TED talk on it, like explaining exactly how to overthrow the earth. Exactly. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, uh, I, I believe. I it. mean, honestly, world probably would not be any worse if it were run by mimes. I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, it would be a lot more peaceful, and yeah, we'd have a lot less quieter shooting off at the mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah it'd be great. It'd be it's great. True. Uh, so Jodorowsky started making his first foray into filmmaking around this time. He was making a lot of short films where he was using his his. Mime, mimery, mimicry, uh, sure. what would you call that? I'm not sure. His mime <laughs> sure. skills. Yeah, mime skills. Yeah, like and uh, he actually started to get some underground acclaim from some, like, French New Wave <laughs> filmmakers, sure. you know? Like, who are, of course, who would be into that, you yeah. know? Uh, but eventually, he wanted to, uh, ex- he kind of felt like he'd gotten as far as he could in Paris, and Jodorowsky moved back to, or moved, not back, he moved to Mexico mm-hmm. so that he could start pursuing filmmaking full-time. Now, his first film came out in 1968, and it was called Fando Elise, which was a surrealistic black-and-white film about a man who was carrying his disabled girlfriend across this post-apocalyptic wasteland. Um, it's it's a pretty raw movie from what I, you've seen. I've it. seen it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, like I said, I got pretty obsessed with his work in general. It has a very similar aesthetic of El Topo, mm-hmm. of just kind of like people wandering across the desert and sort of encountering weird situations. Yeah. But it is it is just a hard watch because it, the budget is clearly so, so low, and it feels so amateurish that it's just even hard to sort of see what's going on. Sure. Um, it, I mean, like all of his movies, it has a lot of very weird, crazy imagery, most of which he didn't even... Some of which he recycled later, but not a lot, so... But it's just, yeah, just from a practical standpoint, it is a difficult watch at this time. Yeah, and I mean, it had some pretty blunt sexual content and violence and a lot of anti-Christian imagery, which did not really sit well with crowds in Mexico City. The preview image, or the the preview screening, resulted in riots in which Jodorowsky had to flee to avoid getting beaten. Wow. And uh, then they had a a screening uh, a week later to, to try again, and kind of the same thing happened. Another riot broke out. So I mean, this was a famously banned movie for decades. Jodorowsky is like, like a pro- provocateur. Oh like yeah, that's like part of his deal. Like in a way, like maybe like Lars von Trier is or uh, Verhoeven is. Sure, he's just like I'm gonna put sort of gross, weird stuff in my movie and show and like focus on it because it's gonna get a rise out of the audience. Yeah, um, one of the yeah. oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, I mean, I think that he does it for like a legitimate reason because he is legitimately interested. 
in sort of these sort of interconnections between violence and sex and all this stuff. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of characters in this movie, like, licking people's blood or putting yeah. their own blood on someone else's lips. And, like, he he's just very sort of obsessed with that kind of weird imagery. Yeah, for sure. And I guess there's, I need to backtrack a little bit because one of the things, the important things he did when he first got to Mexico City was he founded uh, what he calls the Panic Movement, mm -hmm. which was just kind of an artistic uh, movement trying to push surrealism to new and more shocking boundaries. Right. They felt that the idea of surrealism had gotten too safe and they wanted to take it out of their boundaries. So, like, for example... Saying your daddy's surrealism. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, for example, like, one of his productions was a five-hour-long, like, experimental melodrama. Uh, some of the things involved him uh, taping live snakes to his chest. Sure. Uh, slitting the throats of living geese on stage right. and rubbing the blood all over himself. Sure. Uh, making gigantic prop vaginas that he would crawl in and out of. Yeah. Uh, you know, fun-loving G-rated stuff for the sure. whole family. Um, uh, there's another gentleman, I don't remember the, the guy's name, who was part of that movement with him as well, who would go on to, Herrera maybe is the name, who would go on to uh, direct a movie called I Will Walk Like a Crazy Horse. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen this movie? No, I've never seen it's it. It's about this guy who uh, goes into the desert and sort of falls in love with this... Uh, midget who lives in the desert so it has a lot of recurring themes it's kind of like the secret jodorowsky movie yeah so if you're like me and you really like jodorowsky um that's one to check out okay all right i have not heard of that one i mean i based on your response to this movie i'm not sure i can really sell you on that one yeah but, yeah uh, that's a thing you know yeah. like and we'll we'll get into it but i feel like this is just kind of an acquired taste uh that yeah. you well i don't know maybe not even so much but we'll we'll get to that um, so, uh, Jodorowsky was a little off-put by the reaction that Fando Elise had, and... Yeah, he thought it was gonna be, like, a giant hit. Yeah, this thought is the it was blockbuster be... of the millennium. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, but, like, uh, uh, he vowed that his next project would be a much more commercially viable thing, and so he made the most commercially viable genre at the time, he made a Western. Yeah. And so he made El Topo, uh, in 1969, 1970, and he decided, because after the reaction to the previous movie, he was not going to show this in his native Mexico mm, at all, uh, instead he took it to the United States, where uh, it got a screening at exactly one theater, the <laughs> Elgin Theater in New York City. I, I want to stop you real quick, like, I do think that that is an approach that I like in general, where if someone does want to make something weird... They sort of hitch it to an already established genre. Yeah. Like I brought up Beerhoven earlier, and like he was sort of a master at that of like making this sort of action sci fi movie, but I'm going to put in all these sort of weird themes. Robocop and, is a masterpiece. Yeah. 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 Thousand yeah, percent. And this, this is kind of that same thing of like, okay, I'm going to start with these fundamental Western tropes. And then I'm just going to go all this other weird ways. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an odd way to go with it. But for some reason, this worked. So at this one theater, this one screen, the Elgin Theater in New York, uh, it was only shown late nights because uh, the owner felt it was too violent to show during the primetime screenings, sure. of course. But very gradually, it started attracting crowds, uh, mostly of NYU college students or hip members of the culinary culture. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it was becoming a sold-out midnight screening, and it was started attracting audiences uh, from, from kind of all around the city. And one of the earliest proponents, or two of the earliest proponents, I should say, were John Lennon and Yoko Ono, okay. who started going to these screenings and really fell in love with this movie. They say that Lennon saw this four, five, six times. So this movie, El Topo, became the first of what we would come to call the midnight movie, which sure. is you know kind of a kind of an underground, kind of a cult movie that would show really late, and it usually had, like, these very lively, interactive audiences. You know, you could think of your Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Room, I think, is now the biggest midnight movie. Right. Um, I would think Eraser... This this eraser feels like head, Eraser... Yeah. This feels comparable to Eraserhead to me. Oh, yeah. In the sense that, like... To me, when you say Rocky Horror, The Room, and like these sort of midnight associations with it, there's a real sense of sort of fun and playfulness to those movies. Right. Um, whereas this is for all the this is kind of a joyless movie. There's like, like some absurdism, but like it's only meant to be grotesque. I think. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good so way to put it. It's not like a. It, fun it's a hard movie. movie to think like people are there, sort of shouting and hooping and hollering along with the movie. Yeah, but. yeah. I don't know exactly what midnight screenings of this would have looked like. I imagine. And there are a lot of drugs yeah. involved, like yeah. a whole lot. Um, weirdly, I did, as a quick digression, Jodorowsky says he does not use drugs. He doesn't say he necessarily never used okay. drugs, 
but he does say that he has too much imagination for that and that he just considers them like unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, it's hard if it's hard true, to argue yeah. with him because he's got a lot of imagination. Like, he's got a lot of imagination. Either way, no you can question. see why this would resonate with yeah. people who are experimenting with LSD at the time. I mean, like, I'm trying to think. So, like, if we think of 1970, like, this movie is still crazy. Yeah. Like, that's, oh, yeah. that is what is really impressive to me about this is, like, there's this general sense of like, okay, we get more desensitized to things and just sort of, it, we've seen more and more, we expect sort of generally more weirdness. Yeah. But this movie, yeah, like this movie is still super weird by pretty much any standard. And yeah. to think like, to see this in 1970 would just blow my mind. Like this movie blew my mind when I saw it 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. And so like it would blow But especially my- in 1970. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about that on recent shows. We've had a lot of episodes lately with movies from 1967 mm-hmm. through 1970 where everything was really changing. Of course, and like everywhere outside the United States, they'd been going in that direction for years sure. now, you know, and the U.S. was kind of just catching up. But even by those standards of like the movies that are trying to push boundaries a little bit, your Midnight Cowboys, your Bonnie and Clyde's, your your Easy Riders, but things those like are that, like yeah, those they are feel still pretty, very much based. They like, feel pretty tame. Yeah, those are very this. much based on like yes, these are characters we recognize. These are Americans who have problems that we associate, even sure. if the content is a little more extreme than we're used to. Yeah, we're yeah. following an antihero. Like this movie is just filled with so much imagery, and it really. It, it really comes out of the gate swinging in it, El Topo. It, take, it takes away I, all your safety nets, yeah. like which is it, it's cool. It's kind of an exciting thing, and I can understand why that would resonate so much with early crowds. Yeah. Um, so Lennon recommended this movie to his producer, the former producer for the Beatles, a guy named Alan Klein, who uh, promptly came in, saw the movie, loved it, and bought the rights to it, nice. and offered to become the producer for uh, Jodorowsky's next movie. And that next movie was Holy Mountain, which was actually supposed to star George Harrison from the Beatles, who also Hmm. loved this movie. But eventually he had to uh, walk away from that movie. And I got a quote on why from the BB, an article in the BBC. You didn't want to be, you didn't want to be said, part uh, of the scene where everyone had to eat scorpions. You're not right. far off. It said Harrison balked at a request to bear his anus to the camera while frolicking in a fountain with a live hippopotamus. Wow, honestly, if that is the worst thing that Jodorowsky asked you to do in a movie, you're getting off pretty easy. Yeah, God, you get off better than his son did, or any of his sons, really, honestly. Um, So Holy Mountain came out in 1973, and it it has its fans, for sure. I think that it is uh, the most... I think it's the most highly regarded Jodorowsky film, like, at this point. Like, I think it has, like, the most resounding cult, because it is... The weirdest of his movies, and like all it's of his definitely, movies are super weird. Yeah, yeah. This uh, Holy Holy Mountain makes like El Topo look like Ghostbusters. It's the movie that you watch when you are like in college and you all smoke something, and you're like, get a load of this crazy sh- crazy movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah. just like bust it in to try and just out weird all your friends. This is a good one. This is a tr- this is a high trump card uh, for yeah. that game. If you want to yeah. out weird your yeah, friends, exactly. you give them Holy Mountain. But, you know, it wasn't as it didn't find the same commercial success that El Topo did or the same like midnight crowd success. Uh, And then Jodorowsky spent the rest of the 70s trying to get an adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune off the ground, Mm -hmm. which was captured in a documentary. I have not watched it yet, but you told me about it from uh, 2013 called Jodorowsky's Dune. I think you would really enjoy it. I, I I meant to watch it today before uh, we recorded this. I just didn't get a chance to. But I think uh, it's a great movie if you are interested in Jodorowsky the person mm-hmm. because there's a lot of interviews with him. I find it a generally frustrating movie because the whole premise of it is wouldn't this movie that you'll never ever see be, have been great? And it's a very frustrating premise of a documentary. It's like, ah, oh, I really want to see it now. Yeah. Um, but like there's so many great interviews with him and he is just, he's just such an engaging, joyful person. Yeah. Like for all of the weird crap that he puts in his movies, he really does feel like a person who takes joy and beauty in everything. Like, there's a lot of sort of... His movies will have a lot of close-ups of disabled people or a lot of close-ups of... Sorry, of just, like, piles of poo. Like, I'm not yeah. meaning to associate those things in any no, way, no, but no, just, no. like, generally things that a lot of people find off-putting, and he'll just sort of zoom in on them and kind of celebrate them in their own weird way. Even a See, lot of I don't know about that. I yeah, don't know that okay. he's celebrating. It, that's the thing that I was kind of rubbing up against was that I'm I'm like I can't tell if he's if he's celebrating or if it's a, a, a freak show kind of gawking. No, you know? I don't. It's, I don't think it's ever a freak show kind of gawking. I hmm. think he really does 
find beauty in these sort of outcasts. And like, I may, maybe that's just because I feel like I've seen enough of these movies and they just come up so frequently. And I feel like they're always portrayed in a pretty sympathetic way. Yeah. Like here, he's sort of, we'll, we'll get into this more, but like the first half of this movie, he's involved with these sort of two more traditionally beautiful women. Mm-hmm. And then the second half, he gets involved with this midget woman. Yeah. And she, she's kind of, that relationship is much healthier and more fully formed than these the ones at the beginning. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is true. I don't know. Like they, she she's almost like the most well-developed character and that in is, the movie. That is the most recurring thing in any of Yodorowsky's works is just, you know, the uh, disfigurement of, mm-hmm. of various kinds and just uh, his kind of fascination, especially the loss of limbs. Yeah. Uh, which is going to come into play big time with Santa Sangre. Yep. Um so yeah, so in uh, uh, after the the Dune project didn't work out, uh, one of the reasons that they allegedly said is because he wanted the movie to be between ten and fourteen hours long. Well, I mean, and he was not gonna he was not gonna back down on that. He just had a whole bunch of crazy requests of all these people he wanted to be in the movie that he would never ever get to be in the movie and just what there he was, had anticipated. For a time, uh, Salvador Dali was going to come in and play the Emperor, yeah. and he said he would only do it if he got to be the highest paid actor of all time. <laughs> so he was requesting $100,000 per hour. Okay. And Jodorowsky countered with, how about I'll give you $100,000 per minute, and we'll cut your role down to like six minutes. Nice. So that was one of the th- ways that they were working around that. Sure. But you could tell that those are two guys who would really vibe. Yeah. Like yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, hey, I love your mustache. Um, so yeah, after this, uh, the director came back with his next film, which is called Tusk, which is like a children's fantasy film about a boy and an elephant. I think he's kind of just disavowed it as a thing. It's yeah, it's one of those, like, I think it's probably still super weird, but I think he considered it too commercial and just wasn't a passion project. Yeah. I don't think he even wrote it. Yeah. I I don't think, yeah, I don't know. It's based on a book. Yeah. He sat out most of the eighties, but he did come back in 1989 with Santa Sangre, which we will talk about on a later episode. And the year after that, he came out with a movie called The Rainbow Thief, which is said to be his most commercial and least personal yeah. movie. Uh, Peter O'Toole's in it, and he's just... It's its the—it's a it's, movie that doesn't exist. Yeah, it's, it's super hard to find yeah. if you wanted to. And then he kind of uh, didn't really do any kind of filmmaking for the next two decades until he, uh, Dance of Reality did, in yeah, 2013. Yeah, he still did a bunch of stuff in terms of, like, publishing comics. Yeah, that's um, when he became really prolific with that. Right. There's, like, the Meta Barons is a big series that he did, which, again, is very rooted in that sort of European sci-fi. And you talked to, you said, uh, yeah, his next movie, The Dance of Reality, was 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, The Dance of Reality is like his best movie. It's really, super good. That's like it's the, one the of my musical, right? Movies. Uh, no, it's not. A, it's not a musical. It's um, it's sort of a biography of his life. Okay. Um, so it's the premise of it is I think it's his grandson is playing a young him, and okay. his son is who's like I don't know forty fifty at that time is playing his father. Wow. Um, as kind of, as kind of this you know abusive uh, sort of fascistic man, and it's. It's just really good because it has a lot of these ideas, but it has enough of a emotional core to keep you invested. And it takes place under like Pinochet's regime in Chile. Oh, wow. um, that's a, that's one of my favorite movies just in wow. general. I'll so, have to check that one yeah. out. I, I wasn't really familiar with it until I was researching this today. Uh, and, and then he had another semi-autobiographical work called Endless Poetry. Right, which I have also seen. It is it is less good, but yeah. um, the the he's trying to basically make a series of five... I mean... You know he's a he probably is fairly full of himself, but uh, he's trying to make a series of five films that is essentially the biography of his life. Yeah, and okay. I will say like if there was someone that I was going to watch five films of the biography of his life, he'd be in probably the top three. Sure, be like him and Werner Herzog. He's probably got some weird like a weird life going yeah. on. Yeah, I mean. So a couple of like kind of problematic things we need to talk about. I mean, we've already mentioned the animal cruelty. I think that's been a a recurring thing, especially in his early career. Mm -hmm. And it's something that happens in this movie as well. I mean, yeah, this movie, Uh, you know, was filmed in Mexico in 1969. So you can guess that a lot of this sort of restrictions did not exist. Not so much. Not so much. Go out in the desert, film whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, you could arguably say that there's some child abuse involved in this movie. Having What? You force force your kid to walk around naked and like being a bunch of violent scenes of sexual assault. Yeah, like yeah. The, the child, just to be clear, the child is not going to assault. No, no, no. He's just sort of around for a lot of these scenes. And 
and that's the other thing that needs to be mentioned. There is a, a sexual assault scene in this movie. And at the time, around 1971, 72, Yodorowsky was saying in interviews that this was real, that he sure. actually raped this actress, uh, that she didn't know it was going to happen, and that the reaction you got is real because it is really happening. He's gone back on this. He said that he used to kind yeah, of try to say shocking stuff. Well. Yeah. Uh, like, like, you know, cause he said, which people, is probably, I'm sure he did try to say shocking stuff. Yeah. I mean, that definitely tracks. Yeah. But. I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Like he's one of those guys that like, you can't kind of can't really believe anything he says. Right. Like he, he's, uh, he's got kind of a prankster mentality, yeah. but like, it's a fucking gross thing to say, Agreed. like regardless of the period, regardless of whether it was true or not, it's kind of a gross idea. Yep. And he's got, had a problem with like these misogynistic kind of ideas, which a lot of it, you know, generationally, you know, whatever, but he's has some very misogynistic ideas that come across in his movies. And I think this movie is kind of one of the worst offenders of that. Just okay. being, being such an early work of his. I, I don't think. know. I don't really like read Like I, I just to me he's just like to me, he's just sort of obsessed with like sex and violence as ideas yeah and just approaches them in such a different way than I than I think most people do that I I don't really re read them as misogynistic okay. but I can I I get where you're coming from but like I just I don't know I. <laughs> He's just like a lovable scamp to me. Like even yeah. though he's ninety one years old, you just like it's like that scene in the Mandalorian where Baby Yoda's eating those guys. They got the eggs. Oh yeah, and yeah. you're like, oh that little. I can't stay mad at you. Oh, no, he's wiping out. He's wiping <laughs> yeah. out generations. Oh, yeah. I felt better once I learned that those weren't fertilized. Like they weren't. Yeah, they yeah. weren't anything yet, and she could make more <laughs> easily. But still, yeah, no, yeah, I, I I can see that. It's just it is something that needs to be like kind of brought up in conjunction with him. Like totally, you know, totally. but. He again, a fascinating dude, and like we can kind of get into the movie. Like, I stopped taking notes pretty early on because I realized like this movie is just so incredibly visual that like I didn't want this to just be a, a series of me reciting images that was happening, right. you know, and there's right. not really a plot so much to speak of. I think I do just want to kind of wrestle with some of these images and what we think they mean and what right. they mean. like. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, so the the opening image is of El Topo riding in. He's like this typical Western man in black. So, like, he his design is great. Yeah. Like, he oh, yeah, yeah. awesome with, like, he's got this beard, this sort of long, black beard, black wavy hair, and just this solid black sort of leather costume yeah you're barely getting any of like his face or his skin or anything underneath this and, like costume. there's no way it communicates so well like this guy is a total badass because he's just clearly riding across this blazing hot desert yeah. wearing solid black yeah 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 <laughs> and he's just got this child with him that is completely naked except for a hat and yeah. some boots yeah and this is played by Yodorowsky. And Yodorowsky's playing the man in black, and mm -hmm. his son Brontus is playing his son in this. And Brontus is maybe like six, seven six, at this seven. point. Six, yeah. seven, yeah. I don't think he... That's the thing. I don't think he fully knew what he was getting Right, you can't, you can't really, like, consent. No. It's just like, hey, and, you're in my movie, kid. And Yodorowsky like, likes to use his kids in his movies. Like, mm -hmm. uh, his son, Teo, is the lead in Santa Sangre, and all, all of his kids have appeared in all of his movies. Like, that's a thing he does... And like his son in Santa Sang, I know you know when that's not what we're talking about. Like his son is great in he's that. He's a good movie. actor, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah there's and he I kind of feel like that's part of it, aside from just the family connection, but it's this sense of like these kids will put in the work for me. Like I know he wanted yeah. one of his sons to play in the Dune movie, and he's like, Okay, they're gonna spend like years doing this fight training for yeah. these different scenes because he knows his sons will sort of stick with him. And he's his son has said, like, as he grew up, that he just kind of, he was, he did feel a little scarred by the making of this. And sure. it was mostly the scene in the beginning where his dad forces him to bury the toy in the picture of his mother and say that you're not a child anymore. Mm. Like, that was the thing that really bothered him Interesting. when he was, like, Which a little kid. More than not, not a very disturbing scene No, no, but that, that was one of the things that really bothered him most, you know? And then, like... I think every one of Jodorowsky's movies has, like, a moment like that where the dad makes the son do something painful or uncomfortable and says, now you're a man, or yeah. an equivalent like that. And I mean, the son uh, jumping around, you know, but the son is later just kind of summarily abandoned, you know, just mm -hmm. because like, oh, I've, uh, this woman wants to come with me. So I'm going to leave you with these monks and never talk to you again. Like that's it's just a casual decision that he arrives. Well, at. So, yeah, let's talk about like the first I think that the first maybe 15 minutes of this movie are the best part of this movie. Yeah, yeah um, I agree. They, 
they're just writing. We don't know anything about this kid and this na- or this uh, man in black and this naked kid. But they get to this village that is just f- flush with just slaughtered things. Yeah, there's just tons. Of, like right when they're going in, there's just this woman impaled on a stake. Oh yeah, um, there's like the ankle deep ponds of blood in the street and just bodies lined up. For it's a whole, grotesque image. It's, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Like, it really, it really, like, I really dig the aesthetic of this movie of just, like, it kind of feels like this satanic, like, almost, lo- I know it's not influenced by Lovecraft because I don't think that was anything he had any interest in. Probably not. But it really does feel like, basically, it's like you're on the entrance to hell of yeah. these sort of just desert village. It's like this South, yeah, this Mexican all like clay architecture and just like pools of blood and dead animals everywhere. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very heavy metal. <laughs> I mean, I think the the one thing we can definitely agree that this movie has as like a, a larger socioeconomic kind of uh, a statement is about religion. Okay, like I think that's a pretty clear through line because but the, I don't the, know like what it's saying about religion. That's the thing. I don't like, necessarily know what it's. I saying know it is either. about religion. I think it is definitely arguing that uh, Eastern. Religions are the better option over Western religions. Okay. That seems to be okay, the argument. I can see that because the first half of the movie is all about the violence that's inflicted at the hands of all these like religious oligarchs and things like that, and like the the the, the brutality of like this Western Christian world. And then the second half is him being reborn in this foreign culture. And kind of mm. like starting to recognize all these symbols and living a life of peace and things like that. Yeah, but then at the end, he has to mow down a bunch of people in this yeah, village. Exactly, because the two like, the two like spiritualities conflict okay. with each other, you know, and like yeah. they 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 can't peacefully coexist. That seems to be the closest this has to saying anything. There's a scene late in the movie where there's a game of Russian roulette happening in a church, right? You know, like where, the, the past, the pre- preacher is handing out this gun yeah. to the different members of the congregation, being like, "If God loves you, He'll save you, and yeah. if you don't have faith, you'll die, or whatever." Yeah, and, and then it's it that's turns a great out, scene. It's a great scene. Yeah, and it's just kind of speaking to like the randomness of this. It's like you know, if, if that person had shot themselves, they would have called it an act of God. Right. Since it's not, it's a miracle, yeah. you know. And it's just kind of how easily we're swayed. <laughs> so, but for the most part, I don't think this movie's trying to do any big kind of statement like that. Like, I, I don't right. think it's trying to make any anything more than a, a personal statement and just, like, a weird statement. Yeah, I agree. But he's, so he's, like, in this sort of bloodied village. He, I don't even, it's not even, like, a plot point here aside from it's just sort of this weird area he goes to. Because then he leaves and he gets, again, like, there's just, the movie really goes, goes for it right at the beginning because you're introduced to these three bandits who play a very small role, but one of them is sucking on and then shooting at women's shoes. Yeah. Um, the other one has crafted a sort of portrait of a woman, like the the scene in The Master with Joaquin Phoenix. That's what ma- I was thinking yeah, of immediately, yeah. Ma- made a woman out of sand, um, and then he sort of lays down on this bean woman. Yeah. And what, what's the other per- What's the other band? I don't remember. Oh, I don't remember. Is he the one wearing three hats? Like there's a guy. No, that's that's a, that's re- a later, that's a later scene. bandit. He's just wearing three hats for no reason. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so these guys come down and... Um, are going to sort of ambush El Topo or uh, the gunfight. Yeah, I, I don't know what his name Yeah, he's is, called El Topo. Yeah, um, that's that's Spanish for the mole. But, of course, he draws very fast, um, shoots them first, and asks, like, who sent you? And then they're like, oh, the colonel. Yeah. And now the, the colonel's like this imperialistic kind of... There's a lot of characters in this who are kind of like your sort of fat, hedonistic grotesques who kind of just run these towns with iron fists. Yeah. Um. And so, like, so I guess you could be saying that there, there's some commentary about like classism too. I suppose you know, like the rich yeah. people are always preying on the poor. Sure. Yeah. What what an insight. Yeah. You <laughs> know, again, it's 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 been there. Um. So he goes he goes to this other little village that's kind of taken over. It's kind of like. Uh, Oh, you said one of the actors was in The Three Amigos, right? Yeah, Bandit Bandit number one is Alfonso Arau, who played uh, El Guapo in Three Amigos. And, who's the like, main villain, He's right? the main villain. Yeah, he's the main villain and in And I Three feel Amigos. like the colonel like, who's in this sort of village has, like, an El Guapo vibe of, like, having taken over and sort yeah. of enslaved the monks here. Or, like, Pan's Labyrinth, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, oh, I mean... Guillermo del Toro and Joe Dorarski should make a movie together. Oh, right. Those yeah. Guys seem yeah. Like they'd be buddies. One more project they announce and never <laughs> yeah. happens. Yeah. They, there's some nice moments of absurdity here, like where uh, the gunfight's about to happen. One of the bandits blows up a balloon and oh, then puts yeah. it on the ground and lets it deflate. It's this high pitched, goofy sound. And in the meantime, we're getting these like Sergio Leone cuts back and forth for like a big 
scary duel, but it's this high, silly noise of a balloon deflating playing the entire and it, time. It's really, I really appreciated how little dialogue was in certainly the beginning of this movie. And really, this whole movie has very, very little dialogue. Yeah. Which I think is sometimes to its detriment because you are very confused about the relationship between the characters. And also, then it but, gets real talky at the end and you're sort of like not really following yeah. it. Yeah. But um, I do think like here it really clicks. Like, I love the way the guy just takes out the balloon, silently blows it up and sets it down. And they, they all just know what the interaction is going to be like. Yeah, we've all played the balloon gun game before. And there's, no. there's lots of little like uh, anachronisms like that, too. Like, you know, the women's shoes that he's shooting are like of a modern 1970s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. style. Sometimes people will just be dressed like Russians randomly or like women will have men's voices or men will have women's voices. Yeah, like, it, this movie really has like a the whole thing was probably done over ADR, like after oh yeah. the fact, because recording sound can always be a hassle of like a lot of the voices don't seem to match the characters. Like you said, different genders. Um Costumes in this movie are great. I no, feel they like are. They he, are. he always comes through with like great costumes. Like a lot of people just have really colorful stuff. And I feel like, so anyway, he gets to this village and he rescues this woman who's of course about to be raped. Cause mm. why, why shouldn't she be? Yeah. Cause, um, that's, that's, cause that's the recurring every theme. female character in this movie all the time. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then she is of course in love with him because he just saved her. And, um, he basically exchanges his naked son for this woman and leaves the son with this sort of padre of monks. Yeah, he just says, like, don't rely on me. Like, that's it's supposed to be kind of a, a life lesson. Right, just, like, again it. and again, it's that sort of fa- child abuse, um, father leaving the son behind that comes up in his work. Yeah, um, and, and then this, this female this... character, Mara, which he calls her because that's like the name for bitter water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is not a flattering thing to say to no, someone. Like, like, you remind me of bitter water. Yeah, there's nothing there's nothing uh positive really to say about how this character is presented. Sure. Like she's she's obsequious to him at first and then he just kind of on a whim decides to rape her. Yeah, it's so weird. Like this 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 is there's a lot of parts of this movie that feel like frames are missing or something or it's just not like this movie has enough weird stuff going. They don't need to make this relationship so completely confusing. Yeah. Because they're kind of they seem to have like this healthy relationship and love each other. And they're both kind of just standing in the desert. Nothing is said. And he rapes her. Well, and then she goes from kind of being this, this subservient slave girl that he rescues into lady Macbeth. And she wants him to go and fight these four master gunmen to earn her love. And so like, I don't know like she's either like uh, a victim or she's scheming. And it's like, those are the really the only two sides that you get to see of her. But they never, but they never transition. There's never like that connecting tissue of showing her go from one to the other. Yeah. It's like she gets raped and then they cut and then she's like, Oh, I love you. You need to fight these gunfighters. Yeah. And, it, it and Yodorowsky said at the time, the idea was that like she was cleansed by his sexual virility. Sure. It's like, which is this another you. very Jodorowsky idea. Yeah. yeah fuck off with that <laughs> sure. like, right now. Uh, but yeah, it, like not, not the most shining vision. And then we, the only other, well, no, not the only other, but another like key female character that you see in this movie is this kind of mysterious, like desperado woman well, or like kind bounty of a hunter. similar costume to his costume she's of. yeah she's wearing a similar costume which but is her, the, her top is kind of open so you right you get breast shots of course which, of course but she also seems to rep- represent something specifically like sapphic you know and like that she might be drawing this woman well, away yeah, from him with like, her sexual wiles like because well, eventually they get to a point where she basically gives this other woman a gun and says you need to choose one of us yeah yeah um, and this was the part of the movie that I remembered the best in okay. terms of him going and fighting these four gunfighters. Mm-hmm. And this is where it does very much feel like a Metal Gear Solid or something. Cause or all these, Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, <laughs> all of these uh, gunfighters have their own weird gimmick. Like one of them is kind of a yogi that is sort of immune to bullets. Yeah. Um, another one, I uh, this I this design is really good. Is this guy with no arms? Mm. Uh, this big guy with no arms, and then a guy with no leg, a small guy with no legs riding on his back. Right. Um, like with his arms around his shoulders. And again, um, a very specific image that Yodorowsky is obsessed with, as we will see. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um. What? What? There's the guy with all the rabbits. Yeah, that's um, just just the strange guy who lives in a pen full of dead rabbits, or mostly dead rabbits. Well, and they like, become uh, dead when the El Topo approaches. Th- there's a so. scene where they are they're they're having a shooting contest to kill crows. Mm-hmm. That I 
suspect might be them really killing a crow. Sure. Just I I don't know. Just knowing what I know about animatronics of the time. Yeah. And, and in uh, budgets. It's much cheaper to just budgets. find some crows to shoot than actually make I, a puppet. I feel like they might have uh, just like tied a crow down and shot sure. it. Uh he Yodorowsky said he did not kill the rabbits. He said he bought them from a rabbit farm after they'd already died. Yeah, but, this is if you if you're like super sensitive to uh, animal violence, this is not a great movie. To yeah, make. yeah. A, this is a movie with like a lot of asterisks at the top. Like, lot, don't yeah. watch this movie of blank, 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 blank. And, and it's like, kind of a reason like you don't see this as a midnight movie very much anymore. You know, right? And that's COVID nineteen. That's the reason. Sure, but also I mean, you know like, other reasons. Yeah, I mean again like. I don't know. I feel like what Midnight Movies evolved to is you just want to see like goofy, weird shit that mm-hmm. is also like short and, and that's, familiar. That's yeah. the other thing about this movie that I had forgotten is I, I, I once we got there, I remembered that, like, oh, yeah, this movie becomes a real slog um, yeah. because you uh, you paused it um, and we were at like an hour 16 and we're like, wow, there's still almost an hour left to go. And I had completely forgotten everything else that happened in the movie. Well, and kind point. of every, everything that you would expect to happen in this hero's journey quest had happened. He right. fulfilled his quest. He'd, he'd done what he needed to do. And then he was shot and like left. And so he's, he's uh, adopted by this group of kind of mountain dwelling people. Mm-hmm. They they all live inside this dark cave. They're all badly deformed because they've been inbreeding for a very long time in these caves he meets Which was, this uh, I, don't, woman. I don't think it was intended as a funny line, but it did yeah. be funny. He's, she's like, we're all deformed as the result of continuous incest. Yeah. And you're like, who would say that? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, just very casual about that. how we introduce that. our clan. But at this time, he does meet like this little person, and he falls in love with her. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is where he shaves his head and his beard, and we realize he's like, wow, this guy does not look anything like I thought yeah, he looked. This is this is a really <sighs> striking like thing. It's kind of like the scene in Castaway where Tom Hanks just totally switches halfway through the movie yeah but yeah. like you you just like every every bit of hair on this guy's face including his eyebrows gets shaved off and he does not look the same at all it's so weird he turns from jason manzoukas into paul Shear. it's very strange <laughs> it's, a, it's an odd it's an odd transition so there's one question that we ask about el topo it's how did this get made how did it get made i'm cu- i'm genuinely curious yeah, true. yeah and so this latter half of the movie is him and and his new wife kind of touring all these different towns and entertaining people. Well, they, they do their to... mime act. They do their uh, they do this their little tap dancing routine yeah. in front of saloons. You know this this hilarious act where he can't successfully kiss her because she's so short. Ooh. Right, and it really it really plays. The crowd loves. Oh, it. they go nuts. They're, they're really they starved. For he passes that hat around there, just tossing coins in like crazy. Yeah, because he needs to make money to be able to dig this cave to basically let the. Um, let all these cave dwelling people out into the town because yeah. they've been sort of exiled there. And it does really, not that we're looking for like plot holes in El Topo, no. but it is super weird that they all pick him up. They're all sort of out in the town ta- or like out in the wilderness, pick him up. And then he wakes up in this cave and they're like, the only way out of that cave is up. You have to climb for days. For, for they say, days. Yeah. And it's like, well, how did they get him in here in the first place? Yeah. And they kind of brush that off by saying, wow, it must've been hard for you to get me in here. And I'm just like, yeah, I want to know more <laughs> yeah, about that. But exactly. again, you know, yeah, it's it's not something that we were ever meant to really understand. And it's uncl- like we sort of learn later that like a lot of time has gone by in this space. Right. It's not clear at the moment. Because he he uh, uh, he and his wife start being followed by this mysterious figure in monk's robes, mm-hmm. who we quickly figure out is his abandoned son coming back looking for revenge. I don't think so. Cause like, I don't think or, his or, son knows that he's here. Like yeah, I think I don't, his son think is just kind of out hunting exploring. him, and this is where we get the scene of the the guys in the church. Like this is another scene where there's sort of these tyrannical fat men, yeah, like grotesque people, sort of running this town. And there's like a slave auction here where the slaves try to run away, and then they all get shot. Yeah, uh, one of them gets branded, Ugh. and then it's his job to sort of take care of all these grotesque older women who then sort of fake him raping them yeah and thus then he gets sort of strung up and shot um i'm really not selling this movie as like no i mean I, well i think you're you're selling it accurately i mean sure. and again we haven't really commented too much but this the violence in this is incredibly potent i mean right. we get there's a moment where like they they drag a man over and they chop his genitals off with a machete like i don't know they they 
there's just I don't know, buckets like, of blood coming off of everybody. Really, and it's it, that it's that seventies color the fun of blood. kind of blood. It's like your evil dead two type of blood. It's very like, red, like unrealistic blood, and, but it's still a little yeah, it's still and it really shocking. it really pops. Yeah. Like it I don't know, it really looks good. It does, like, yeah, in, in that very specific way that 70s blood. That look, It looks like paint, but it's still kind of more disturbing for that. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's just a lot of that going on. Um, and like very weirdly, um, all this whole town is just sort of plastered. Um, this is... I. I, like the gunfighter scenes is where I felt like the movie kind of dragged, even though that was the part that I remember the most. Yeah. Because it's just he's in the desert so much. And despite the weirdness of sort of the gunfighter's premises, they all kind of look the same and feel the same. And he never really beats them in all that interesting of ways. No, one like, of them kind of makes him go crazy because he shoots himself. Yeah. Uh, and that's so that, never quite explained. One of them just kind of falls in a pit. And, yeah. like, I know that I think that was, like, part of the trap they set for him, but it's just not sort of shot or edited very well. Like, it just doesn't... This, I think that Jodorowsky does have, like, a really impressive eye for, like... I feel like most of his movies are, like, really well made for someone who wasn't sort of, like, a student of film. I mean, like, he, you could tell he was definitely paying attention to Westerns and, like, American Westerns in particular and how they're shot. You and, know, like, like, most of the shots are, like, pretty good and you can really understand what's going on. Yeah, and there's but, beautiful scenery. Mm-hmm. Like, it really looks very nice. But occasionally there'll just be a lot. Oh, there's a, oh I remember the bandit at the beginning was uh, chopping a banana. That's with it. A, which, which, is a very, which is another fun scene. He propped scene. a banana on a cactus and then chopped it up with a sword, yeah. <laughs> grabs it with a toothpick. Um but like there is occasional moments, like even though the movie is shot well, where the editing is just super weird, and it right. either feels like there's missing clips or it's just you're not seeing what you need to see in some of these moments. And that is something that's worth mentioning too: is that this movie was thought to be lost for years and years and years hmm. because uh, it, it existed as like a recurring midnight movie. But as we got into the '80s and '90s, that started happening less and less. And Alan Klein, the producer of this movie, was refusing to release it on home video. Yodorowsky says he was waiting for him to die. Uh, or or oh. he was waiting for Yodorowsky to, to die so he could release some kind of retrospective. And then he just kept not dying yeah. as he continues to not yeah. do. Keep, uh, keep up with the good work, man. Yeah. And uh, so in 2007, this got a restoration by the Criterion Collection along with Holy Mountain and a few other movies. Fando Elise got a re- release at that time, too. And so that was when Ebert got to finally see this again. And he wrote his uh, great movies essay. It was 2007. So it's, I think it's now that it's kind of more accessible and more in the zeitgeist or like not, I think some of the mystique around it has been punctured a little yeah, bit. Yeah. And so this isn't a movie you hear about as much anymore. Right. It's not spoken about in hushed tones. Yeah. It's not this thing you need to talk to a guy to get access to. <laughs> like, is this a thing that I saw once or did I just fever dream this? And I do like one thing I do like about this movie too is it does, I mean, it does feel super low budget. I mean, he's yeah. making this independent Mexican movie in yeah. 1970, and it's about as low budget and sort of amateurish as I w- feel like I would want to go and yeah. still feel like I'm really getting, like, a fun experience. Again, I'm getting a, I'm getting an Easy Rider vibe off of it, okay. like, in the same way, like, having just watched that recently. Like, they're, they're, you could tell they're made with a similar level of uh, experience, you know, mm-hmm. but, they, but they've got some visionary people going on behind it. I I think ultimately like surrealism is a tricky thing for me to get on board with. Like, and it's one of those things that I, it's frustrating for me because I can't super articulate why like David Lynch works for me Mm -hmm. and something like this doesn't. Okay. And I, I I think maybe I'm just responding to the, the horror nature of Lynch more than, more than anything else. And just like, how, like, how effectively creepy. This movie is pretty horrible. Like, oh, this, in terms it's, of like... It's, it's uh, uh, vicious and it's cruel, but like... Yeah, it's it, this is more about the horror of humanity. Right. And I think Lynch is kind of about otherworldly forces like trying to corrupt humanity uh, to a degree. I don't know. They're, they're, it's, it's difficult to kind of put I, my finger on I it. I mean, I think that... I, I mean, I don't know. But like, I, I have a feeling that David Lynch kind of starts with themes of his movies... And sort of starts with his ideas feel sort of more for all the weird stuff that's in them. They do seem like they're put there in service of the story. Yeah. Where with a lot of Jodorowsky's movies, it really does feel like, okay, he has this idea for a crazy image and then he's going to kind of find a way to shoehorn it in. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's there's some of that going on. It's just I don't know. I I think on a, a personal emotional level, I just don't really connect with it. I have difficulty with all the violence against women and mm-hmm. children and animals. Like it it it's one of those things when that comes up in a movie when like an animal is really being hurt for mm-hmm. something for mm-hmm. a movie. I always just kind of get angry and just wait until you get to Roger Ebert's great movie Cannibal Holocaust. Oh man, that <laughs> is that is his favorite one. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. He, he called it the it top was, five best movies about turtle it was murder. Gates of Heaven and Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> One's a, one's a prequel. And Hoop Dreams. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the big three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those are the big three. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Do we have anything else you want to say about uh, El Topo? I mean, I agree that it doesn't really have, like, a great emotional core. Mm. I just think that, like, it's amazing to me that this movie basically was still surprising me with, like, because that the scene of them, like, uh, playing Russian roulette in the church comes pretty late in the movie. Yeah, by the time by a sense of like I had already sort of been losing steam a little bit, and yeah. then it, that kind of revitalized me. And it's like, wow, it's just amazing that he's able to sort of keep coming up with weird things to show us. You know, two hours into this movie, um, and then again, knowing sort of more of his full career, it's crazy that he's then able to keep showing us new things. 50 years later into his right, career. Right, yeah. Yeah, I... No, I, I can admire that. Like, I always admire, like, a visionary. I admire yeah. when somebody has something genuinely different and interesting to say. And, like, it, it, for for whatever reason, I just don't connect with this in, yeah. the, in the way... Like, and I think this is... More than most genres, surrealism is going to be, like, whether you, you, you get it or you don't. Sure. It's... And and that's a but cop I don't, out. It's I like don't a even think that's fair. Like I think though, that but, you yeah. you said it right when you're like Lynch clicks with me and Jodorowsky doesn't. And I think that that's fine. I don't think you can say surrealism. You get it or you don't. Yeah. But like sometimes certain people click with you because they just right. Match yeah. Your, yeah. 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 That's and, that's what more what I yeah, mean. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 the like certain. It's like comedy. Like yeah, yeah. Some things are yeah. I I will I will laugh very much at Pat Oswalt and not at Meet the Spartans. (laughs) Sure. I don't know if that is that's the dichotomy, right? So some people like uh, (laughs) Ernest goes to jail or the stupids, and sure, they're gonna you know give you the stink eye, but uh, they might they might really click for me, for example. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, thank you so much for being here to talk about this. This is a very weird one to tackle, and uh, I'm glad I'm glad I got to rewatch. I'm glad I got to rewatch it this was my first Jodorowsky I had seen um. and so it I was sort of more excited about it by being because of the promise of m- having more to come I watched it and I'm like man I can't wait to watch this guy's other movies so did you set out specifically to watch all of his films or did you watch no. this it clicked with you and then I you watched this watch and this. then it clicked with me okay and so I this... was like excited to watch more for him though okay. I think that this is one of his weaker movies I weirdly think I watched Santa Sangre first because sure. uh, it was an Ebert recommendation and I would, mm-hmm. it, I'm like, well, this sounds crazy. I want to yeah. see this. Um, and then I went back to El Topo eventually and Holy yeah. Mountain. But uh, I mean, it, yeah. just because it is, you know, it's not quite as polished as any of those later things. And I do think he put more emphasis on story and like, as is true for many movies that I like, I think they would be better if they were shorter. And I think this yeah. may be more true than... Anything, though I will say we didn't, um, I really appreciated that the kid, his son, shows up at the end, um, mm. sort of giving a feeling of full circle in, and then uh, emerges in that El Topo garb. Yeah. Um, I think that this movie ends in a satisfying place, even though yeah. I wasn't crazy about, I was sort of losing steam in the middle. Like, I do feel like it comes around in a full circle kind of way yeah. that is satisfying. It does, yeah. No, I would say, yeah, it, it weirdly does for a movie that is... Not plot focused at all. Um, I, I think it it does come back around. Um, well, thank you so much again for being here. Yeah, we are going to be pivoting pretty hard again next week. Uh, we went from talking about this week's acid western, and next week we are talking about one of the most traditional classic American westerns on the list. We're going to be watching Stagecoach, John Ford's movie uh, that introduced the world to John Wayne. One of the most archetypal uh, cowboy movies ever, I think, and kind of the framework for the modern Western. So I'm excited to dig into that one and see how that one made this movie possible. Yeah, you know, all the weird true. little ties that kind of yeah. went into making El Topo a thing. So, uh, all right. Well, we are uh, saddling up to stay in the Old West, I guess, for next <laughs> yeah, week. So exactly. uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Mo
mosey on out of this town. Thank you.